What is up my dudes? Welcome back to Olympia Oddities. I've got an absolutely ridiculous, really, really fun story for you guys today, so let's just dive right into it. Today, I'm going to be telling you the story about how on one summer night in 1924, Ape Canyon got its name. So, Ape Canyon is a narrow gorge located on the southeastern side of Mount St. Helens. The canyon was heavily impacted in the 1980 eruptions of Mount St. Helens, which I just recently covered, but today it's popular with hikers and mountain bikers due to the Ape Canyon Trail that runs through it and the Ape Cave that's located inside of it. At this point, you're probably like, hold up, wait, the Pacific Northwest doesn't have apes, that's dumb, why would it be named that? And you'd be right, we don't have apes, but what do we have? Bigfoot. It's named Ape Canyon because on a summer night in 1924, five gold prospectors allegedly had to fight off an attacking group of Sasquatch. The five men, Fred Beck, Gabe Lefevre, John Peterson, Marion Smith, and Marion Smith's son, Roy, had all been mining for gold in the Mount St. Helens and Lewis River area for six years. They had the occasional weird experience of finding large tracks by creek beds and springs, but wouldn't encounter anything that out of the ordinary until 1924, when they began mining at their claim, which they called the Vander White, located about two miles away from the mountain. The Vander White was located on a cliff in Ape Canyon and was only accessible by climbing up and down with the assistance of ropes. They found more huge tracks along a creek bed on this trip. In my main source for this episode, a book by Fred Beck, one of the prospectors, titled I Fought the Ape Man of Mount St. Helens. I feel like you have to say it like that. You have to pull out like the prospector voice. Okay, the book's called I Fought the Ape Men of Mount St. Helens, okay? He claims that these footprints measured 19 inches long and that they came from no animal known to them. The week before the attack, they'd been hearing strange, sharp whistling noises coming from the trees around them. It would start up in the evening, and it sounded like it would start on one ridge and then be answered by another call from the opposite ridge. Fred also described hearing a thumping, booming sound, like something hitting itself in the chest. In my new favorite book, I Fought the Ape Man of Mount St. Helens, Helens, Fred uses made-up names for the people who were there, saying that, quote, To avoid embarrassment to the relatives of the other four men involved in the 1924 incident, I have not directly mentioned their names. He uses the made-up name Hank for one of the men who was with him. The night of the attack, Fred said that Hank had come to him and asked him to walk with him to the spring that was about 100 yards from the site to get some water. Uh, because he was a little apprehensive after finding the tracks and hearing all the weird sounds in the woods. He also suggested that they take their rifles with them, just to be safe, so they took them with them. They made their way to the spring when Hank yelled and raised his gun. Fred looked up and spotted a hairy creature, about a hundred yards away, standing next to a pine tree on the other side of the canyon. Fred described it as about seven feet tall and covered in blackish-brown hair. It hid behind the tree, then poked its head up from behind it, That is when Hank decided to fire his gun. He fired three shots, and Fred recalled being able to see the bark fly from the tree as each of the three bullets struck it. The creature disappeared for a few seconds, but then they spotted it running upright and quickly, about 200 yards down the canyon. Fred said that he fired three more shots as the creature was fleeing. They carried their water back to the cabin and explained what had happened at the spring to everyone else. As a group, they all decided that they would leave the next morning. They didn't leave that night because it would have been dark by the time they got to the car and they didn't want to risk getting lost in the dark. 
They all returned inside the cabin and went to bed for the night. Around midnight, they were woken up by a huge thud against the cabin wall. Hank had been sleeping on the floor, and bits of the cabin's wall had been shaken out onto him. He had his gun in his hand and was waving it back and forth as he yelled in confusion. Fred helped him get the debris off and helped him to his feet. They heard a huge ruckus coming from outside the cabin, sounding like, quote, It sounded like a great number of feet trampling and rattling over a pile of our unused shakes. The rest of the men picked up their guns, and Hank used the new gap in a cabin wall as a lookout to peer outside. Three creatures were spotted, though they would later say that it sounded like many, many more. They began throwing rocks at the cabin, and Fred wrote that most accounts tell of giant boulders being hurled against the cabin, and some say even fell through the roof, but this is not quite the case. There were very few large rocks around in that area. It is true that many smaller ones were hurled at the cabin, but they did not break through the roof, but hit with a bang and rolled off. Some did fall through the chimney or of the fireplace. Some accounts state that I was hit in the head by a rock and knocked unconscious. That is not true. He claimed that the only time that the men fired that night was in self-defense. I guess that's true if you don't count the six shots that they fired at the Bigfoot who was just chilling by the tree earlier. I'm very anti-shooting Bigfoot. I'm very pro-leave-him-alone for most things in life. Um, it's like, what'd you expect to happen? Now you're getting attacked by a family of Bigfoot. I have no sympathy. Sorry. The creatures would quiet down for a few minutes, and they would quit shooting in hopes that the creatures would realize that they were just trying to defend themselves. The Sasquatch then began climbing on the roof of the cabin, and the men began to fire shots through the ceiling at him. Uh, one Sasquatch tried taking down the door, and they had to barricade it with a long pole taken from one of the bunk beds and firing more shots through the door. Others began to push on the walls of the cabin in what seemed like an attempt to push it over. Fred claims that he and Hank did most of the shooting during the attack, and that the rest of the men crowded to the far end of the cabin, guns in their hands. One had a pistol, which is still in my family's possession, the others clutched their rifles. They seemed stunned and incredulous. The battle lasted throughout the night, with a few short pauses before firing back up again, but the scariest moment would come when one of the Sasquatch reached its arm through the gap in the cabin wall and managed to grab onto the handle of an axe that one of the men was holding. Fred claimed that before he was able to pull it outside, he turned the head of the axe so it got caught up in the logs instead, while, Frank fi or while Hank fired a shot that nearly struck him in the hand in the process. The Bigfoot dropped the axe, and Fred grabbed it and tucked it in a safe place. Fred also recalled Hank singing in a desperate attempt to communicate with the creatures that he called Mountain Devils, singing a song that went like this, If you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone, and we'll all go home in the morning. Because the attack was so long-lasting, the men got good looks at the creatures, and Fred gave a further description of them in his book, saying that, they are about seven feet tall, but many people have seen larger ones. They had large ears and a head that was in proportion with their large muscular body. Their shoulders were tremendous, but they had slim hips. They were hairy, but not shaggy. In general, they possess a very stout physical frame, but looked more like a giant human than an ape. Slim-hipped Bigfoot? Dibs on the band name. Just before daylight, the banging, weird noises, and rock throwing all stopped. Once it was light enough to see, the men cautiously emerged from the cabin. Fred spotted one of the Sasquatch about 80 yards away, standing on the edge of the cliff of Ape Canyon. He fired three shots and sent it tumbling down the cliff, down into the gorge. The miners decided that it was for the best to just leave their supplies behind and to head back to safety without them. 
They left about $200 worth of supplies, powder, and drilling equipment behind as they fled to safety. On the way back, Fred tried to convince everyone to keep quiet about the entire ordeal. Everyone originally agreed with him, but when they arrived at the ranger station at Spirit Lake, Hank immediately went into the ranger station to tell someone what had happened. The ranger, Bill Welch, and Hank had previously spoken about the weird tracks being spotted out in the forest, and the ranger had made a comment among the, along the lines of, tell me if you ever figure out what they're from. Fred was pointed out to the, or Hank was pointed out to the barn where Bill was attending to his pack horses, and they met each other halfway in the yard. Hank told him that he had shot a mountain devil, so Bill asked him, a bear? No, I shot a mountain devil, Hank replied. Bill asked again, a wolverine? And so on, until the ranger finally understood that Hank was talking about something outside of understood nature. They returned back to the town that they called home, Kelso, Washington, and Hank began telling some of his friends, who then told their friends, who told their friends, and then eventually the local newspapers started to pick up wind of the story. Reporters from Seattle and Portland interviewed the men, and they even met up with a big game hunter from England, who showed up carrying a large gun that they assumed must have been for shooting elephants, and was asking lots of questions about the creatures. The U.S. Forest Service decided to start an investigation into the incident. Two rangers, J.H. Huffman and William Welch, hiked out into the forest with Fred Beck. He led them to the cliff where the Bigfoot he'd shot had alleg allegedly fallen down, and the Oregonian wrote of this investigation, Quote, a ranger scrambled down this supposedly inaccessible canyon and found nothing. They moved on to the cabin, where Fred pointed out the stones that were strung about from the attack. Neither of the rangers were impressed by the sight and figured that the men had just most likely moved the stones there themselves. When the rangers returned to Kelso, they met with a reporter from the Oregonian who asked them about the huge footprints that had been spotted around the cabin. Huffman created an imprint on the ground with the knuckles and palm of his hand, saying, they were made that way. Even though the ranger's investigation pointed towards the whole thing never happening, people still wanted to believe, and the story continued to spread. Later on in the summer, the Oregonian would write, friends and acquaintances of the five men who reported their experiences are of the belief that they actually saw something which cannot be explained. The canyon became known as Ape Canyon, but as time went on, the interest in the story faded. Interest in the strange cryptids who might be roaming the forests of Mount St. Helens was once again reignited when a 1963 Longview Times article detailed the disappearance of a skier who went missing under incredibly unusual circumstances. The article quoted a well-known Portland mountaineer named Bob Lee, saying that Dr. Otto Trott, Lee Stark, and I finally came to the conclusion that the apes got him. He continued on, saying, On the way down the mountain, he left the other climbers at a landmark called Dog's Head at the 8,000-foot level. He told them he would ski around to the left and take a picture of the group as they skied down to Timberline. That was the last anyone saw of Carter. The next morning, searchers found a discarded film box at the point where he had taken a picture. From here, Carter evidently took off down the mountain in a wild, death-defying crash, dash, taking chances that no skier of his caliber would take unless something was terribly wrong or he was being pursued. He jumped over two or three large crevices and, ev and evidently was going like the devil. When Carter's tracks reached the precipitous sides of Ape Canyon, the searchers were amazed to see that Carter had been in such a hurry that he went right down the steep canyon walls, but they did not find him at the bottom. We combed the cabin, one into the other, for five days. Sometimes there are as many as 75 people in the search party. After two weeks, the search was called off.
The author of this article, Marge Davenport, would write two more articles about the Mount St. Helens eight men, and in the third she revealed that an employee at the ranger station later had a lot of fun with a foot form. From time to time, he left imprints on the Spirit Lake shore. This caused a lot of excitement, and later, when someone discovered the tracks were all of the same foot, he admitted the hoax. Several theories for what caused the strange 1924 attack have been posited over the years, including a theory by William Halliday, director of the Western Speleological Survey. It's a cave scientist. I had to look it up. Um, he thought that the attackers were just local kids. In his pamphlet, he explains that there was actually a camp tradition at the nearby YMCA camp, Camp Meehan, where they would throw pumice stones into the canyon. This tradition stopped with the explosion of Mount St. Helens, but it is possible that the thing that had freaked these prospectors out so much was just some YMCA kids chucking rocks down a hill. The narrow canyon's walls might have distorted their voices, explaining the strange noises that the men had heard. Others theorize that the men have been caught up in a uh, rock slide or just made the entire thing up. The fact that the story's details change throughout the years with each telling and interview kind of point to this. Fred believes that he was a psychic and later in life realized that these Bigfoot-type creatures attacking him were actually interdimensional beings coming to deliver a message to him, which is what the entire second half of his book, I Fought the Ape Man of Mount St. Helens, is about. I really cannot recommend this book enough. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to support the podcast, give me a follow on Instagram or Facebook at Olympia Oddities Podcast. Leave me a positive review or tell a friend. My personal Instagram is at MKUlta if you want to follow me over there. And until next time, friends.